there. Uh, stay there. Follow along with me. If you don't own a Bible, uh, then there should be some sort of Bible next to you. Please take that as a gift from our church to you to take you home uh, with you. Um, that doesn't mean if you have 30 of them at house that you can steal our Bible, all right? But if you don't have a Bible, then we want that to be a gift from us to you this morning. Well, let's get started here this morning. When it says this, in Matthew chapter 8, um, verses 23 through 27, as we've been working through the Gospel of Matthew, we've talked about the, the Sermon on the Mount, the greatest sermon ever written. And we spent several months kind of working through that line by line, verse by verse, and seeing what Jesus would have for us. He comes down from the mountain and he begins to preach, to teach, and to heal. And we see that in our passage this morning, in verse 23, and when he got into the boat, his disciples followed him. But in order to understand that passage, you've got to kind of understand the text and the context of what was taking place before that. Jesus probably for several days now, has been engaging in mission. The same thing that he calls us to, um, he is engaging in. As we say all the time here at Mission, Mission doesn't have its own mission. God has a mission, invites us to join in with what he has going on. And so Jesus never does anything that he doesn't first illustrate or call himself to do and then calls his children to do as well. And so Jesus has been traveling around around the, the place where he was preaching on the Sermon on the Mount. He's healing people. He is casting out demons. He's doing all these sorts of things. But after a long day of engaging in mission, Jesus gets in a boat to head across the Sea of Galilee. Now, I've not got the opportunity to go to Israel yet. I hope to and pray um, that I can get maybe some courageous people to one day go with me. Um, but I want to go very bad. But if you know anything about geography of the Sea of Galilee, it's about 700 uh, feet below sea level, and it is surrounded by mountains. It's, it's very high peaks, and then you've got this really low, low. So the climate and what happens there is, is very, very interesting. But why does Jesus want to head across the lake? Why does he want to head across the sea? I want to encourage you this morning as you're reading the Bible and as we study God's Word, the questions that we ask are extremely important into understanding what God would have for us. I think it's important for us this morning to understand and ask that question. Why is Jesus wanting to get on a boat to head across the sea? I'll tell you why. Because the Bible tells us to avoid the people, to get away from the crowd. He's tired of these people, all right? He's tired from engaging in ministry. He is, he is tired from the healing. He's tired from the mission, but he is also, look what he says in Matthew 8, 18. Now, when Jesus saw the crowd around him, he gave orders to go over to the other side. So for an introvert like me, thank you, Jesus, for giving me a clear exit strategy, all right? And so we see this picture that Jesus is wanting to get away. He is, he is wanting to, to make a, a, a fast getaway away from these large masses of people who are gathering around him. Quickly, church family, it is quite important for us to get this quickly. Jesus is not obsessed with crowds. He is not obsessed with crowds. See, a crowd can quickly turn into a mob. 
I don't know about you, but I've been in some situations that I'm quite embarrassed about, about that I got involved in, that I had no intentions of first getting involved in them. I did not seek out that night to go do this. But the crowd was. And so I quickly became engrossed into something because a crowd will breed a crowd. See, people can be easily swayed by a crowd, can't they? Well, it seems right. There's a lot of people there. It seems okay because the masses are heading in that direction, and yet Jesus is not that. When we look at that in regards to the church, it's important for us to understand this, is that that just because a church is gathering a numerical number does not mean that Jesus is growing it. We must be very careful in not making an idol out of a big crowd or a big church. But simultaneously, we've got to be careful about not making an idol out of a small church and a small crowd. I hear people say all the time, well, I don't really like big church. Well, heaven's going to be big, filled with people. The church is big. It's global. And yet you'll also simultaneously hear people say, well, man, I just really love a small church. The thing is, we need to love Jesus and his church and his mission, but not get caught up in the things that Jesus is not caught up into. I'm a I'm pastor. I mean, I, I get asked those sorts of questions all the time. Is the church growing? And my wife says, I always make this really awkward because I usually say, what do you mean by that? I'm growing a lot. I've been eating a lot. All right? So if you mean that, then yes, we're getting obese. All right? But if you're meaning, what are you meaning by that? We need to be obsessed with the things that Jesus is obsessed with. And so Jesus is avoiding this crowd. He's been with these crowds. They've been following him, and he's, he is ready to get to the other side of the water away from these people. Why? Because these people are missing the point. They're gathering around Jesus. They're intrigued by this man named Jesus. They're uh, you know, immersed or, or thinking about the, the healings that are taking place and the casting out of demons and even healing Peter's mother-in-law. I don't know if Peter wanted his mother-in-law to be healed, but he healed her, Jesus healed her, all right? And so this is what begins to take place, and Jesus is wanting to get away from them because they're missing his true identity. See, there are lots of people that are worshiping a type of Jesus this morning that are not worshiping the biblical one. They've created a character of this Jesus or a cultural picture of this Jesus, and they claim to know him. They claim to worship him, yet they do not know the God of the Bible. And so Jesus has become tired of them missing the understanding and the point, but also has become tired of engaging in ministry. They have watched Jesus heal the leper, the centurion's servant, and as I said, Peter's mother-in-law. The word is beginning to spread about Jesus and that his abilities while simultaneously missing who this Jesus is. Think about it, ladies and gentlemen. How many of us have ever turned on the television to see a massive crusade of a guy with a nasty comb over and a white suit claiming that he can heal people? We're not talking about a few crazy folks that believe in this. We're talking about mass gatherings of thousands of people because this man claims he can heal folks. One of our summer traditions over the last couple of years is that um, as a family, we have sat down and 
DVR and then eventually catch up to this show, America's Got Talent. Anybody watch that? It's, uh, you know, we have to be careful on a few things, and, um, but for the most part, it's, it's pretty entertaining to see all of these different talented acts throughout the world who are a part of this show. Um, but what's really intriguing for me, and I know Pastor Justin because we talk about it after it happens, um, but even Ava is watching the magic take place. And I'm telling you, there are times when they do these magic tricks that I'm just like, they worship the devil. There was some moment in their life, they were walking down a country road, it was a crossroad, and underneath the tree there was a dude playing a guitar, and they have sold their soul to the devil to be able to get these abilities, because I have no idea how are they doing this. But it's intriguing, isn't it? It's, it's mysterious. See, we live in a culture that is obsessed with the supernatural, if you read young adult books, I can mean most of them have a bloodsucker and a dog who all love the same girl in them, all right? And it's weird, but we are obsessed with supernatural things in our culture. Think about our, our, our movies, the things that we enjoy to read. All of those things have a lot of supernatural things. I was talking to a guy this week who was formerly engaged to a woman, and this woman told him, thank goodness they're no longer together, but he, she told him, Hey, I, I just want you to know, I'm, I'm just not religious like you, but I'm spiritual. Man, I got a doctorate degree, and I have no idea what that means. But that is our culture. That is our society. And in the same way, maybe Jesus or these people are, you know, kind of really intrigued with the unexplainable, the X-Files that... It, that are in our lives, or maybe like the, the goat boy or the bearded lady that Jesus has in some way become more of a circus sideshow than he has become the king of kings and lords of lord of these people. See, Jesus leaves. Jesus is trying to get away. Jesus is fleeing. People who are more concerned about being entertained or having their bellies full, than they are about worshiping as Son of God. We will also see in this passage today there's a major test of true discipleship, right? I don't know about you, but when we get in a rush, don't we get short? School's about to start. And if you, any of you know what that transition from like summer to school starting I don't know about what it's like at your house, but come Wednesday morning, it's going to be a hectic mess where there must be much grace shown. We got to go. Like, you got to get up. You know, you tell your kid to get up, you, they, like two hours to take a shower, and you find them sitting on the edge of the bed. It's like, no, you're going to school with your hair like an 80s rock and roll band if you don't get in the shower right now and get cleaned up. You got to wash your business. You got to put on some clothes. You can't go to school like that. It's like, no, that, kids have no understanding of time, do they? So we're all running around. It's like, get in the car, woman, right? I mean, you're, you're saying all of these sorts of things. And so Jesus is trying to get away. And right before he gets away, what happens? People begin to ask him questions. They're like, Jesus, I will follow you wherever. And Jesus, as you kind of get this picture, is like walking. He's like, hey, dude, I don't have a place to lay my head. So if you're going to follow me, you've got to realize you're probably going to be a homeless person. And then another guy comes up into him and says, man, I will, I will follow you, Jesus. I will follow you wherever you want me to lead him. And, and, and 
And Jesus says, all right, follow me. And, and the guy's like, but, but Jesus, my, I need to bury my dad, as we heard last week. And what does Jesus say to the dude as he's like hopping in the boat? Hey, let the dead bury the dead. I'm going. So if you're going to follow me, it means drop everything. Follow after me. And so Jesus is, is getting away from these people. He's simply saying, follow me. But we need to be careful to understand something, brothers and sisters. Jesus does not beg for disciples. There are cases where he even says, you can't be one. He's not begging for people. He's just simply saying, follow me. And for those of us who believe in effectual call, we know when he says that in an effectual way, they follow him. And those who don't, don't. But Jesus isn't begging. He's not, you know, wringing his hands. He's not acting like, come on, please, please follow after me. I want you to know this is the greatest decision you'll ever make. This is the greatest adventure you will ever be on. You need to follow after me. Make this decision. Come on, drop those things. Follow after me. This is not the picture that we see of Jesus. He's like, hey, you follow me. And when he does that in an effectual way, but they come. They don't have to be begged. There's so many sermons in that that we don't have time to even cover this morning. But I want you to know, here at Mission, we believe in making disciples as Scripture says to do that. But in that, there shouldn't have to be begging of true discipleship. As we learned last week, there's a greater scare, and that's the case of non-discipleship. So Jesus continues this kind of episode. He hops into the boat, as the Bible tells us, to get away. It must have been right there, and he gets in, and the disciples follow him. As a child, I grew up in going to a church. You had the, this thing called a felt board, and they had these like little other pieces and pictures of felt, and they'd slap it to it. So you'd have like David, and he'd be wearing this armor stuff, and then like Goliath, and they would, this is before projectors. This is aging me, all right? This is before you drew it on a poster board. They slapped this. This was high-tech church right here. Felt board picture of this story, and you would see this like little John boat and like 12 grown men in this boat, and they would tell us this story. But there's a bigger picture here. The Bible does tell us that, that and he got into the boat and his disciples followed him, but it, these dudes were fishermen. This boat was probably about, I don't know, 30 or so feet, probably 10 feet wide. This is very common practice for, for Peter and several of these men who had been on these waters countless numbers of times. If you've read the Gospel of Mark and his account of this same story, you also learn something that they never told us on the felt board, and that's this, that there were multiple boats with Jesus. So you kind of get this flotilla example or this picture of all of these boats maybe connected together or following after each other as Jesus is transforming or transferring from one side of the sea to the next. It's probably late in the evening by now. Jesus gets into the boat with several other boats following after him. And in verse 24, it says this, And behold, there arose a great storm on the sea, so that the boat was being swamped by the waves, but he was asleep. 
Now, what's interesting, if we look at this, if you want to circle this in your Bible, is the term um, storm there, a great storm on the sea. Again, I told you about the Sea of Galilee, 700 feet below sea level, all of these peaks and mountains across it, so you had this cold air that is up in the atmosphere. You have all this warm air that is down at the surface level, and it is known even to this day that a storm can swell up on this body of water, causing huge waves. In the Greek there, this word seismos is, is literally termed that we get earthquake. So you could read it like this. There was a great earthquake on the sea. So imagine taking a bottle of water, putting a little cork or a ship in there and shaking it up. And that is the picture of this mega storm, this perfect storm that is happening around these boats. This violent, terrorizing storm that had a group of even fishermen fearing for their lives. They've seen many storms, but nothing quite like this one. And what's interesting about this is these seasoned seamen, they are freaking out, but who do they run to? The carpenter. Like, like he knows something about this, or that he would know something more. The, the Bible tells us here that the, the storm creates large waves and it literally began to swamp the boat. So all of these men are running around and they're maybe bailing out the water in these huge drops of water. The wind is crashing around. It is the white squall on these boats. Surely these men would perish. Yet what does the Bible tell us? Jesus is doing. Dude's asleep. Now, I can about sleep through anything. My wife gets mad at me all the time. How'd you sleep through that storm last night? Like this? All right? Cricket chirps. She's up. Then she's up for hours. It drives me crazy. About every night, I wake up to my wife with a blue face where she's in the middle of the night looking at her cell phone. I'm like, how do you do that? No wonder you're tired the next day. I can't sleep. It must run in the family or something. I don't know. But, but Jesus is asleep. And so these men are, are freaking out. They've tried everything that they could possibly do. I mean, I hate to get rained on or sprinkled on. And Jesus, there's getting, you know, just gallons of this, of this seawater that is being dumped on him. And Mark tells us that he's laying on a mat in the, in the boat. So they run up to Jesus. And what do they say to him in the Bible here? It says, save us, Lord. We're perishing. We're, 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 we're dying here. In Mark's account, they woke up Jesus saying, teacher, do you not care that we are perishing? And that's a passage to remember. Awakening Jesus, do you not care? Look around, Jesus. We've never seen a storm like this. This is a hurricane. We are going to drown. You've led us across this lake, across this sea, to drown. Save us, Lord. And yet, what does the Bible tell us? Jesus wakes up and immediately says, why are you afraid? Oh, you of little faith. Now, I don't know for sure if Peter was on his boat. But I, I, maybe I like to read too much into Peter, but I have the tendency to to read in between the lines, to 
pick up on that. Peter was probably a smart aleck. Peter always seemed to have an answer. It always wasn't the right answer. It may have been a very confusing answer, but, but Peter always had something to say. Now, some of you can relate to me and Peter. There's, you have to really hold back what you are really thinking about every situation. Peter just seemed to let everything fly. But we don't know if Peter for sure was in this boat. But I just imagine Peter at this moment when Jesus finally wakes up and says, Why are you afraid, oh you live faith? Of him going, Look around, Jesus! Like, like what do you mean? This is where the sarcasm would ensue. This is where the, the eye-rolling, the smart aleck comments. I'd be like, you know, Captain Obvious, can't you see what is going on here? The, the ship is sinking, and you're asking us, why are we afraid? Look around. We are going to die. The ship is going down. You, you know, you better hope that Rose from the Titanic is not on your boat because she's going to let you drown even though five dudes could have fed on that board at the end of that movie. All right? You're drowning. You are going down. And yet Jesus gets up, and what does the Bible tell us? It says that he rebukes the wind and the waves. He says, peace, be still. And the Bible tells us that there is this great calm. You know, earlier in the passage, he told us that there was this great storm. And, and now, after Jesus is saying, peace, be still, the, the Bible tells us there's now this, this kind of, um, you know, if we compare those things, this now great calm that instantaneously the, these massive waves stop, this wind stops. I imagine if it's raining, it now stops. Everything goes completely calm. I love going to the lake. Do you? And one of the things that's cool about the lake, if you go early enough, especially if you're going fishing and things, is that if you're in the main channels, there's all this uh, rocky water. But if you get it out into the, the areas that have not been skied on and jet skied on and all those sorts of things, you can hit this water that's like glass. And it totally changes even the ride of that craft as you just skim across its top. Jesus in this moment, I mean, we're talking about, you know, massive, fearing, terrorizing storm to instantaneously becoming nothing but silence. My brothers and sisters, it is at this point that I've really wrestled this week. See, now that we kind of understand the passage, this is where traditionally I would be tempted now um, to begin applying this passage to our community of faith. Typically, this is where I would, would, would talk about the storms in our lives. This is typically where I would, as a pastor, I would try to paint a picture because I, I realize as one of your pastors that many of you this morning are going through very difficult moments. This is where I began to take this passage and I would begin to talk about how that this storm that disciples are going through and how that compares and be connected and how there are implications because each one of us 
are going through storms in our lives. Maybe I would paint this picture and ask you, maybe, maybe there's a storm in your marriage right now. Maybe I would say that, man, there's a, there's a storm in your finances or in your singleness or in the raising of your children. And, and those are real storms. Those are real issues. Those are real moments of difficulty. Maybe you're battling addiction this morning. Maybe you're fighting fear or, or relational difficulty. Maybe you're in mourning this morning. Maybe you have grief. I'm not saying that there isn't a place for that and that there's not even scriptures that would reflect that. If you go home today, I want you to know this, and you're to YouTube, Matthew chapter 8, verses 23, or um, wherever we're at today, 23 through um, 27. Or if you're to read a lot of commentaries, that's where they would take you. You know, there'd be some closing remark of, like this. Jesus still calms storms. Let us pray. Again, not to, to belittle those storms and not to belittle the preaching and teaching of my brothers because I, I think that that is true. I think we could even go back to where we have the episode where Jesus is talking about the storm coming to the house that was built upon the sand or the house that was built upon the stone and that the storms came to both of those homes and yet one was built on a firm foundation and one was on sinking sand. One was destroyed and one was saved. I'm not saying, brothers and sisters, that that is not a truth of the Scripture. But I must be faithful to the text this morning over being faithful to our feelings. See, that I would conclude, I would suggest to you this morning that this passage is not about our personal storms. That this passage this morning is, is, is not primarily about the issue that you and I are going through this morning. Some of you, it's easy for you to get up this morning and come and worship with us. Others of you, it was maybe very difficult for you. It is, again, not to belittle those real issues and not to say that Jesus doesn't have truths for you this morning in those areas. But it's to say that there is something greater about this passage than Jesus calming the storm in your life this morning. I think is clear in this passage this was a physical storm not a symbolic one we've got to be really careful about making scripture to kind of into fortune cookies pragmatism make me feel good in this moment unless that's the context of what's happening in that passage this was a storm, a terrifying storm. See, this, this point of this passage is not about how Jesus is with us in these storms of life, but the main point of this passage is about the personhood, the character, and the nature of Jesus. This passage is about Jesus. Not primarily about those disciples and this horrific thing that they're going through. See, like those who are gathering around Jesus to watch these miraculous healings, 
We can be around Jesus, we can claim to have the faith in Jesus, and yet be more in love with what Jesus can do for us, or what we'll hope that he will do, instead of who he is. We must get this. We must ask ourselves tough questions this morning. Do you love what Jesus can do for you? Do you love what Jesus may do for you? Or do you love Jesus? Do you love his very character? His, his very nature? His very attributes? Are you in, in, in love with, if we were to equate that, are you in love with your, your wife because of what she can do for you? Or she makes a great meatloaf? Or do you love her because simply for who she is, her very character, her, her very nature, and even, even in a greater way, do we love God this morning? Not because of out of some fear that we don't go to hell, but that ultimately we get to go to heaven to be with God. This is the heartbeat of worship. This is the testing that I would say that Jesus is taking this small group of disciples on as he leads them across the water. He's been speaking about discipleship. Hey, if you're going to follow me, you need to know something. This is not an easy journey. There are many trials and tribulations across the way. Some of those are very physical in nature. Some of them are more um, relational or emotional. But to truly follow me, you must understand my very character of who I'm declaring that I am. Do you love God? Do I love God? Or do I love the idea that he could possibly throw me a life vest? Or do I love it that he is the life vest? The Bible tells us here in verse 27, And the men marveled, saying, What sort of man is this that even the winds and the, the, the sea obey him? This is the thesis, not the storm. This is where I believe that Matthew is heading in his writing and what he has been trying to do over this last section of, of Scripture. Because here's what we know. Is sometimes Jesus doesn't heal people. Does he? So what's he doing? Doesn't that seem real mean? If Jesus has the ability and doesn't do it? You ever know somebody that died of cancer, a really strong believer? Jesus doesn't always heal. Jesus doesn't always save the Christian from the tornado hitting their house. And so if, if, his, if your love for him is based on, on simply him doing those things and you miss his character, you miss who he is, you are going to be greatly disappointed with God. You're going to wrestle even more so in your faith because your faith would be built upon a foundation of your feelings instead of the fact of who our God is and who he declares in his word. It is crucial for us to get this. See, these Jewish men that have been writing with Jesus, they would have known the Old Testament scriptures, like in Psalm 89.9 where it says, You rule the raging of the sea. When, it, when its waves rise, you still them. 
See, they would have seen this. They would have known this. There have been other great Jewish men of, of God that have done miraculous things before Jesus. And yet all of a sudden, this, this guy, this, this man, as, they, as scared as they were of that storm, they are now a marveling exaltation of who is this man. There is something different, and I believe that Matthew leaves this very open-ended on purpose. What sort of man is this? This, this very question answers itself, because this Man must be God. Isn't he a carpenter? He's from Nazareth. Nothing good comes from Nazareth. Maybe he's a good teacher. No, this passage declares before us this morning, before its readers, before Matthew is trying to convert these Jewish people to understand that Jesus is the Messiah, he wants them to know very clearly that, that all of the attributes attributed to God in the Old Testament, and I could give you verse after verse after verse after verse about God's power in the created order and all these sorts of things, and yet we see this picture as Jesus is asleep during a massive storm and yet he wakes up and says peace be still and that's exactly what happened only God can do this see brothers and sisters Jesus has authority Jesus as his word was said in his very nature in his very character in his very ability is the king over all creation we see in chapter 8 over the last several weeks we have seen Jesus have authority over sickness yes we've seen that he has chosen to heal certain people you think when he got on that boat that there were still people crippled and sick even as he's trying to get on the boat he has a greater purpose see jesus in in giving us some glimpses of physical healing on this earth is trying to say something about the life that is to come more than he is about right now He's trying to illustrate to those of us who would follow him, to these early followers of Jesus, that, man, in my kingdom, there is no cancer. There is no sickness. There is no disability. There is no autism. There is no death. But also, Jesus is now flexing his authoritative might in showing them not only does he have power and authority over our physical bodies, but he physically has power over creation. He has power over nature. See, let's flip the script for a moment. Let's say that we go out here. I love to fish. I love, I've been on some, like, Kentucky Lake. If you've ever been on Kentucky Lake, it's a very wavy, windy lake. But I've been on that lake when it storms, and it's quite frightening. But let's just say for a moment we're all on a ship, and I'm really tired, and I go to sleep, and a storm happens on Kentucky Lake. Massive storm, the waves start rolling into the boat, and, 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 and you know, Pastor Justin runs up to me, and he's like, hey, Pastor Eric, Captain, here's the deal. You're asleep, the boat is sinking, and I jump up. What do I do? If I'm the leader, if I'm the captain, 
Well, I start saying things. All right, all right, uh, Leanne, uh, give the kids some goldfish. Todd, grab that oar. Adam, you grab that oar. Jacob, play a melody so it'll help us row better. I mean, I'm, I'm starting to direct all of you to tell you what to do. That's not what Jesus does. He doesn't jump up and say, grab a bucket. <laughs> you know? He doesn't say, throw people overboard. He speaks to the sky. He speaks to the water. He speaks to these things. See, if I'm the captain, I'm ordering you. But when God is in the boat, he orders everything. He can look to a cloud and form it as he wills and as he, wa- as he wishes. How does he do that, though? Through his word. Brothers and sisters, he does it through his word. When we have seen these miraculous healings account, he's like, be healed. And guess what? They're healed. With the very power of his voice, he, he speaks into these storm clouds, into these waves, and guess what? He controls them through the power of his word, through the power of his speech. And we have been graced, being this side of the cross and resurrection, that we had the physical word of God in our hands that they did not have. In Hebrews chapter 1, verse 3, it says this, He is the radiance of the glory of God and the exact imprint of his nature, and he upholds the universe by the word of his power. After making purification for sins, he sat down at the right hand of the majesty on high. See, we misunderstand the beauty of God's word even in the midst of your greatest storms. See, sometimes when Jesus shows up on the scene, um, he kicks you out of the boat. That's Jonah. Sometimes when Jesus shows up on the scene, he, he calls you out of the boat. That's Peter. And sometimes when Jesus is on the boat, he tells it to be still. But all of this is done as, as we have a tendency to, to really look at the waves, to, to look at the storms, to look at the circumstances of our lives. Jesus is revealing once again that it is about His character, His nature, His goodness, His glory, and that we must trust His Word over what we see. See, one of our greatest struggles, like those early disciples, is, Jesus, do you care? Do you care? We're perishing. Over and over again in the Psalms, we see this as the Psalms write, do you care, O God, or awaken, O God, from your slumber? Do you not see the pain and the turmoil and, and the difficulty that I am in. And yet Jesus is illustrating, as we see over and over in those passages and the continual passages after this one, is that, that yes, he sees those because it is utmost about his character to do so. See, our greatest temptation for us is to forget who Jesus is. Do you trust me? 
Will you trust me? Brothers and sisters, I want you to think about this for a moment. And this is, this is really deep. Jesus, in his humanity, became tired. He's asleep. He's in such deep, needed sleep that he can sleep during a storm. And yet why this God-man is asleep on a mat in the boat. Every drop that fell into it was held there by his sovereign hands. While he was asleep. See, a, a drop of water has between two and five, six, sextillion atoms in it. You know how much a sextillion is? I had to look it up. It's a number with 21 zeros after it. So between two and five sextillion atoms in a single drop of water. And yet as our God and Creator, the Creator of all things, as He sleeps in the stern or in the bow of a boat, is, is physically in His humanity resting and sleeping, yet simultaneously is controlling every atom and holding it place in every one of those drops in that sea and the ones that are falling from the sky. Because it's His character. That he cares about those. He cares about you. He cares about me. See, in the midst of their small amount of faith, he was more faithful. Isn't that good news? They had little faith. He didn't say they were without faith. Why do you have little faith? I don't know about you guys, but man, some of those i got little faith. And yet this morning, my heart and my affections, our hearts and our affections can be turned toward this almighty God that in the midst of us in our circumstances and life and just journeys, that we can have a little amount of faith and yet to know because it is in his very character that though I am of little faith, he is more faithful they couldn't drum up enough faith to convince him to turn this, this storm into to peace. What does he do? He trumps their lack of faith with his faithfulness. So this morning, we can remind it of the gospel in the midst of all of these things, in the midst of your life, when you are lacking in faith, that Jesus has perfect faith and imputes that perfect faith upon us. That is good news for me this morning. It is good news as I have the, the tendency in my selfishness and sin to play, woe is me, God, do you not even care? This is how sin and Satan works. And yet Jesus is coming in power and will bring an eternal great calm to our lives when he comes for his church. As we read earlier in Psalm 107, I believe that this is a prophetic foreshadowing of Jesus as we read that 
in that passage in Psalm 107 when it says, Some went down to the sea in ships doing business on the great waters. They saw the deeds of the Lord, His wondrous works in the deep, for He commanded and raised the stormy wind, which lifted up the waves of the sea. They mounted up, on the, up to heaven. They went down to the depths. Their courage melted away their evil plight. They reeled and staggered like drunken men and were, were at their wits' end. They cried to the Lord in their trouble. And he delivered them from their distress. He made the storm be still, and the waves and the sea were hushed. Then they were glad that the waters were quiet, and he brought them to the desired haven. Let them thank the Lord for his steadfast love, for his wondrous works to his children of man. Let them extol him, let them worship him in the congregation of the people and praise him in the assembly of the elders. Brothers and sisters, as we see here in this passage and in our passages, Matthew, it is not that your storm is not important. But I want us to understand something. It is that God is greater than the storm. Even in His character. Even in His nature. Some of you, He is going to remove from those things. But He doesn't cease to be God if He doesn't. And so we must fall in love with his very truth of who he is, the very nature of his being, the creator of all things, the one who sang creation into existence in Genesis chapter 1, the, the one who was with Moses, the one who was with Jacob, the one who guided that stone of David's into the giant's forehead. He is the ultimate and true greater God, and that is whom we worship. That is this Jesus, and he's asking us today, will you take me at my word? Even if it appears that I'm nowhere to be found. Because I have control over your physical body. And I have control over this natural world. Because I am God. Do you love God? not what God can do for you. Do you love Him? Do you know Him for who He is? Who He declares to be? Because that changes everything. Mission Church, may we be a people of God's Word. May we be a people of God's Word. Knowing Him and loving Him and sharing him, not an ease of life, but the character and nature of God.